Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 18. After Hours with Justin Thomas. Hello, and welcome to another After Hours episode of Pints with Jack. This season we've been reading through The Great Divorce, and as regular listeners will know, while we've been reading through the chapters, I've been constantly referencing videos from The Great Divorce Project. It's a YouTube channel containing videos, short vignettes of different scenes from The Great Divorce. And listeners will know that my co-host Matt keeps forgetting to watch them in advance of our discussions. I'd want to know a little bit more about the genesis of The Great Divorce Project. So I reached out to the channel's owner, and a few weeks ago I began a correspondence with Justin Thomas. And so I invited him onto the show to talk with us about his involvement with The Great Divorce Project. Justin. Welcome to Pints with Jack. Oh, thanks a lot, David. I'm glad to talk with you. Likewise. Now, at the start of each episode, we typically share a C.S. Lewis quotation and then cheers. So I thought an appropriate quotation this week would be this one from Mere Christianity. Lewis says, Christianity was never intended to replace or supersede the ordinary human arts and sciences. It is rather a director, which will set them all to the right jobs and a source of energy which will give them all new life if only they put themselves at its disposal. And so with that, cheers. And since you're based in Seattle, for today's episode, I decided to drink coffee. <laughs> Good for you. I actually lived in Seattle for about a year and a half. So uh, when I started watching the videos and I recognized some of the backdrops, I got very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, but just to kick things off, uh, please introduce yourself to the listeners. Who are you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Good. Uh, so my name's Justin Thomas. I've been a pastor of a church called Calvary the Hill. I'm in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle for the past eight years. Um, we started the church in 2010, and we're part of a family of churches called Calvary Chapel. And our neighborhood, Capitol Hill, um, is is young and dense, and it's been a fountainhead of culture for all of Seattle and beyond uh, for decades. Um, way back in the 70s, Cornish Institute of the Arts was up here, and then the gay community came in and took over the neighborhood and brought with it all of their love of the arts, and so grunge was born here, um, right in the Comet Tavern, and um, anyway, so it's always been a part of what we've done down here, um, and and so we, we came into Capitol Hill, um, and and yeah, we've we've been here ever since. I live here with my family, my wife, and five kids. Um, and we love we love Seattle, and we love we love our neighborhood. Even the rain, because I've got to admit that kind of ground me down. <laughs> to be honest, actually, uh, yeah, I I I love our weather here, and it's I will say, like everyone else, the winters are hard. We're dark for months, you know, um, and that's partially the rain, but. But I tried to live in Southern California and enjoy um, the sun and everything, and I hated it. <laughs> I just longed to be back home. So I, I think there's something in the water here, and it's deep in my bloodstream now. Oh, that's good. I did roar with laughter when I was watching one of the videos, and this interviewer was going around the gray town, and it was <laughs> yeah. Seattle. And it's like, this is my memory. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. The springtime and summer is gorgeous, but yeah. I still have a, a very deeply set memory of lots of grayness and rain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the funny thing about that particular video is all of those interviews in the beginning of it are, uh, are 
actual neighbors of ours, people who live in the city. And so it's funny how they kind of, kind of navigate, uh, navigate the reality of those conversations. Um, but, but feeling that balance between the gray town that we're identifying and the gray town they live in is good. Mm-hmm. And what about you personally? What was your relationship with C.S. Lewis? Did he have a part to play in, in your Christian journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a big Baptist church, um, and the objective side of Christianity I was well acquainted with, I identified as a Christian, but the subjective reality that I was a sinner in need of saving, that didn't really sink in until I was in high school. Um, and about that time, uh, I started reading Mere Christianity for the first time, and then since then have read C.S. Lewis extensively. In fact, it's still pretty common for me in conversation to say something and think to myself, wow, that was a really insightful thing to say. And then a few months <laughs> later, reread something in Lewis and discover that I'd just taken it from him. Um, so yeah, there's there's been many parts of that. My son, my second born son, uh, his name is Ransom for the Space Trilogy. Nice. That's hardcore. <laughs> um, so yeah, C.S. Lewis has played a big part in my life. So then where did the Great Divorce Project come from? How did it become associated with your church and what was the involvement? Yeah, so kind of the actual story is a few, a few years before we actually started on the project, I had seen a dramatized version of the Great Divorce at a small theater here um, in Seattle called the Taproot Theater. And it was the type of theater that was very small in the stage. It was a theater in the round very little in terms of set dressing, not very high budget. And so it puts a lot of weight on the actors to really carry um, the value of the show. And I was struck by how impactful it was when the conversations were, were so physical and so tangible, because that's the majority of the great divorce is not, not descriptions or, or plot it's conversations. Mm -hmm. And so seeing them live, and being so moved by them and then listening to conversations we overheard of people who were also watching afterwards, I just really appreciated the value of it. And so initially we were hoping to do um, our own stage production. I tracked down the script that they had made use of, which was put together, um, put together by a small theater in New York city. Um, And we kind of worked on that for a while and, uh, and it just didn't pan out. And so we kept thinking about it. And, um, and then I realized that all of my favorite parts were these vignettes that were once again, focused on the, the significant conversations, you know, the parallels in each one is it's a resident of heaven and a resident of a hell, hell having a conversation. And basically, uh, basically eventually that diluted down to just the seven that we ended up utilizing for the Great Divorce Project. We had started a relationship with an organization called Artist Reformation. Um, We'd done a project with them in the past where we'd had local musicians um, kind of get familiar with one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament and then write, record, and come into our church and perform a song that reflected the mood and the message of the prophet. And Artist Reformation had just been a great assistant in that. So I sat down with Ruben, uh, their director, and kind of we talked out the great divorce. And we ended up deciding on film because 
Uh, there's a large group of filmmakers uh, in in the Seattle area, and we realized that by working with multiple filmmakers, we could get some diversity uh, out of the project. And so, basically, what we did at that point was we took the the seven vignettes, um, we titled all of them in advance, uh, we raised uh, just a little bit of funds, just enough to say to a filmmaker we know the cost you're putting into this and we want to bear the load. Mm-hmm. And then we just started shopping around looking for filmmakers and we basically left them uh, the creative freedom to follow the script as it were, uh, or to do something completely different. And it's fascinating actually um, how different the films are. Um, yeah. I mean, the one of them is a horror film, which which in some ways is, is my favorite, even though it's really intense. Um, <laughs> and, and others are very strict adaptations, which I also find to be, once again, really effective and moving. So, so yeah, that's how it came to be. That's really cool. So do you see this as something of the charism of your church? It, it, part of its mission is to engage the arts? Yeah, and it's, it's something that um, has ebb and flowed uh, one of the things about being part of a church in the central si- central part of Seattle right now, and especially in our neighborhood, Capitol Hill, is there's a good deal of transience and mobility. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're a small church, less than a hundred people, but we probably see half of our church move on every couple of years and be replenished with new people. And so sometimes we we're full of artists, and sometimes it you know it waxes and wanes, and so. Um, it's something we've, we've tried to keep up, but, um, but it does have a, a seasonal element to it. Uh, and the thing is, and C.S. Lewis knew this, um, you know, he, he says somewhere that, um, the space trilogy was basically the abolition of man <laughs> put together creatively and, and the arts provide such a good side door to the truth that gets around some of the barriers of of primary issues people have and places where their thoughts have become rigid and are no longer supple and the arts can, you know, come in through the window and get them thinking about things that they usually wouldn't take the time to think about. Um, and so the other component of, of what our church is in, uh, in Seattle, um, we're, we're very much a, um, a city with, with where Christianity has always been in the minority and in our neighborhood we're we're one of just a handful of evangelical churches and so so there was an apologetic reason to engage with the arts as well uh to kind of consistently find that side door into our neighbors minds and hearts to just get around some of the rigidity that we encounter yeah i think that's really true the other day one of my friends was asking me about lewis as an apologist mm-hmm. and i spent all of my time talking about his fiction <laughs> And just because I think that's actually one of his greatest strengths. You can have a conversation with someone about heaven and hell through reading The Great Divorce in a way that is, I think, much more productive very often than just simply laying down the Christian doctrine of heaven and hell. Yeah. And I would say that's a, that's a, a biblical concept. You know, two-thirds of our Bible is narrative. Mm-hmm. So God seems to be very comfortable with utilizing story to, to convey truth. Especially with Lewis, uh, you know, his not just lucidity and clarity, but his ability to craft an image. It's, it's almost put to better use 
in fiction than in narrative. He, he paints pictures so well, you give him a bigger canvas and you get a, a better picture, you know? Yeah. When you were assembling the different vignettes, how did you decide which parts to adapt? Was it, did you primarily go for the ones that had those conversations that you were talking about that really grabbed you? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was basically two things. Um, we were looking for, for vignettes that were based around the conversation, you know. So there's a couple of um, more allegorical, observational happenings um, that the main character just, just sees, like the woman in the waterfall or the, or the old woman who's never had any kids but has all of these children. Mm-hmm. You know, instead, we focused on the ones that were primarily a dialogue between a resident of heaven and a resident of hell. And, you know, you mentioned earlier how, um, how apologetically this works. And one of the things that I love about it is that the question that Lewis forces over and over again is not what will send you to hell. It's what will you choose over heaven? Mm. Um, and so these seven conversations all have that kind of thing where, you know, it's, it's basically a citizen of heaven trying to convince a citizen of hell to come to heaven and the citizen of hell balking and saying, no, I have something better. And it's just such a surreal thing. And so, so yeah, we focused on, on those seven. And then also we really wanted ones that you could um, title clearly and provocatively, you know, and so the, the self-loving mother, you know, they, or, or even the artists in our community, you know, that's a little bit self-referential for us. And so <laughs> we, we really didn't have much left on the editing floor, though. These are really the, the seven centerpiece vignettes of the story. Out of those, just from Lewis's own writing, which, which, is the, which is the conversation you find yourself coming back to again and again when you think about The Great Divorce? Oh, man. The one that killed me when I saw it in theater, the one that kills me every time I watch the short film, um, is, is the mother, the self-loving mother, mm. um, because there's just so much sympathy. I'm a parent as well, so much sympathy and where she's at. And you, you see, I think all the glory of, of the human heart as God built it and how easily twisted it is all at once. You know, you stand on all sides from all reference points in that conversation. And, and, and honestly, I don't know if there's a moment I don't know if there's a moment in any of Lewis's writings that moves me as much as kind of the, the final punchline of that conversation where she doubles down and effectively says, I would rather my son be with me forever in hell than in heaven without me. You know, it's just so, so human and yet so convicting at the same time. Yeah. You see how we can take something that is so good and still manage to go so wrong with it just by twisting into little. Yeah. I think it's especially helpful too in our in our times where where love is such a um, front of the line value that almost everyone holds and fights their battles for, and to, so to see it in a light where it's like yes, but you know it's also really challenging to get people to broaden out and go well, what do we really mean by love, and how does it how does this play out in ways that actually serve people and aren't just another form of self-love and selfishness. And even the idea that a good love can still go wrong. In The Four Loves, Lewis says that when love becomes a god, it becomes a demon. Absolutely. For me, in The Great Divorce, I think my favorite chapter is the one with the Episcopal ghost. Uh, In The Great Divorce Project, it's called The Intellectual. 
mm-hmm. just because I've always loved theology and to have that mirror held up to me that, hey, you can have all of this love for intellectual pursuit and knowledge of God, but it's possible even there to go wrong. You can become, as simple said, you know, a clanging gong. Mm-hmm. And I, I did really like that episode as well, because it, it, that's the Seattle uh, monorail, right? That's right. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was funny. It's like, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, an, a, I don't know if I have a film in there that's not my favorite in one way or another. Um, but, but I really like that one. There's something the filmmaker caught about that last moment where, where the heavenly friend gives up and walks away. Uh, which is so, uh, honestly, as a as a pastor, it's so relatable, you know, because it's full of grief and frustration and all of these things. But it's also, I think, maybe the most self-referential for Lewis, where, you know, he spends so much of his time there. Um, I, I would imagine he's he's writing from his own experience and his own weaknesses and propensities uh, as well. The thing I find tragic about that scene is the bright spirit is trying to find something on which to build, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to see that pursuit of truth is seeking something, truth, or the desire to be happy, or even just trust in his friend. And really, he sees that there's nothing left. Yeah, it's all, all journey and no destination. Yeah. And as he says in the book, you can't travel, hopefully, if you know that you're never going to arrive. Yeah, yeah. One of the other videos I wanted to ask you about was the artist. Because that's also, that's in my probably top five <laughs> interactions. Mm-hmm. Where was that filmed? Yeah, so one of the nice things about Seattle is within an hour drive uh, is beauty in basically every direction. So we have the San Juan Islands. Uh, we have Mount Rainier. Um, we have the vast expanse of Canada. <laughs> it's, all, it's all available to us. Um, that is in the uh, Snoqualmie Pass, so it's it's in the Cascades, the same mountain range that Mount Rainier is in, but closer to Seattle. And and he just caught just the right timing. It's you know a beautiful spring day on the filming, and so the flowers are in bloom. They hiked. Uh, um, Osgood, the the filmmaker, uh, he was telling me that they hiked basically all the way up that summit in the rain not sure the weather was going to break for filming or not. And then it just, (laughs) the whole day bloomed in front of them and they got what they needed. So what you're saying is they ascended from a rainy gray town (laughs) up (laughs) a mountain. (laughs) This sounds very familiar. Yeah. Well, it's, you're right. It's just, it's just a good context. And um, boy, it's amazing how the setting really, really makes that particular film and Ozzy was always frustrated with me because we could never seem to get a projector that really conveyed the quality and color correction that he put into the film. It's just so, um, that one is more rewarding to see, uh, with, with good gear in a high res than all the other ones. And it's amazing how much that shifts the significance of the conversation. Mm. Particularly his invitation to, you know, seeing comes first. Mm-hmm. And even the, the extended cut at the end when he's just looking at the scenery and just soaking it all in. Yeah. Your point about the showing, that leads me on to my next question. When each of these were recorded, how did you show them? Were they shown at your church? 
Was there a film festival? How did that work? Yeah, we did. We did um, two things in particular, and we still even now have a third one in the queue. So the first thing we did, there's a longstanding institution in our neighborhood known as the Northwest Film Forum. And it's basically a school um, and theater and community center for the film community here. It's just a few blocks from where we meet for church. And so we, we, rented, uh, we rented out both of their theaters, which is still only about 300 seats in total. Um, and we invited all of our community and the filmmakers to come to a showing of all the films together with a dialogue with the filmmakers to follow. And so that was kind of our frontline event. Um, and then we utilized that event to invite people to the next seven Sundays at church. And each Sunday we took one of the films um, and then I taught on a hard saying of Jesus that uh, corresponded with, uh, with each character. Um, so for the moralist, we looked at the rich young ruler who, you know, says with full confidence, all of these things, all of the law I've kept since I was a youth, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so every Sunday we'd show a film, um, the filmmaker would introduce it, we'd have a little Q&A with him, and then I'd teach on a corresponding passage. And so we did that for seven weeks. Um, and then... Uh, the films still are kind of reverberating around the World Wide Web and things still pop up. And there's a um, there's a C.S. Lewis festival in New York, uh, which I think, like most of them, I think is called Inklings. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny for such a creative genius as Lewis. All of his followers aren't very creative in the naming of their groups. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, uh, so anyways, we're we're docked to, to have a showing with them, um, I think, next next festival which is fall of this year oh wonderful my co-host matt he actually lives in new york so i'll make sure he goes <laughs> oh great yeah he'll finally get a chance to see them <laughs> yes <laughs> all of those sermons that you gave on each of those topics are they all on your website mm-hmm. yeah so there's a uh, a page where all of our sermons are and in the archives now is the Great Divorce Project, What Would You Choose Over Heaven, is the title of the series in there. Um, they all exist there. Excellent. I'll make sure they're all linked in the show notes. As we start drawing to a close, how did this whole process change your reading of The Great Divorce? Did you see things that you didn't see before? Did your perspective shift at all? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so, especially with, um, with the short film called Some. Uh, which which is the horror film of the group and is the most unrigid adaptation. I think inspired by would be more more appropriate. And he he toys with uh, quite a few ideas in that. But but by by utilizing just the intensity of um, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's, it's effectively kidnapping and potential abuse and all these things, but, but by, by harnessing that and kind of pulling a Nathan from the old Testament, when he confronts David and saying, you are the man, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of the victim and realizing that you're actually the perpetrator and seeing, you know, the wages of sin is death with capital letters instead of, you know, some of the smaller ways that we excuse, you know, the little, the little white sins of our life and actually seeing how they play out and how, how scary they can really be. Um, that, uh, that was our most, 
controversial film. It's the one that I had to give, you know, trigger warnings before we watched. It was the one that some of my leaders, when they saw an early edit of it, pulled me aside and were like, are we really going to do this? Is this really what we want? You know, um, but but it, it did. It opened up. Uh, I'd call it a poignancy. You know, it was really but it's really a potency. That's a better way to put it, because poignancy sounds enjoyable. Uh, and I, I found that to be really potent. It was a very strong reflection on the significance of these things. And, you know, I learned a long time ago that we have this bad impulse to read the Bible um, as if it's about those other bad people. Yeah. <laughs> and not realize that we're always the characters. And it's the same with the great divorce. It's really easy to shake your head at the characters. And I found through this project, you you can't escape how much it's you on the screen. There's, there's something about it. And I think even, even when we've read The Great Divorce aloud around a table, just that embodiment really anchors that in a different way. And so that, that very much changed the way I engage with it. Hmm. Is the full version of the horror movie vignette, is that available online? Because I don't remember seeing it in the channel. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I think we should probably upload it. For a while, we were keeping it offline, and it wasn't because of the because of its content, but because he had other ambitions for the film. Um, and when you're going to get into a film festival, they want premiere status, and so it can't really exist anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But I think he's he's at the end of that journey now, and so if it's not up there, I'll go ahead and upload it today. Um, and and like I said, it, it stands alone. Um, if you ever went out to West Seattle, you'll still get some of those those features of the city in it. But it is it is a very different film. Wow. You're welcome, Internet. I got a new video up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you'd like to say about the project before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, there is one thing I forgot about uh, that, that was really interesting. We uh, took a trip to Paris where I have a sister church. And we did an outreach with the great divorce films, which was um, which was interesting because uh, C.S. Lewis doesn't have any um, any foothold in France. Really, you know, even even the Chronicles of Narnia is is relatively unknown. You know, it's it it has a very small Christian constituency to begin with, um, and so even the Christians in in the church in Paris didn't really know C.S. Lewis. And what was really interesting was, um, on top of that, the films are very American, especially two of them, for example, the one about the, the gray town, you know, is, is very much playing off of NPR and podcasts mm -hmm. uh, that just don't <laughs> exist in France. Uh, and then um, the other film that, that we weren't sure how it would carry was The Moralist, which is very much about the the rage of the internet uh, and stuff, which I also associate with being tremendously American. Um, and so we translated all the films, but there was this undone cultural translation that we weren't sure how it would impact. And so what was interesting is as we invited people in Paris to come to the showing and then had a conversation, it took a lot more work. We would watch the films together. We would... Um, take time for them to ask questions about the film, then we would watch it again, and then we had the dialogue. And so there was always this upfront, challenging, lost in translation thing. But what struck me was by the time they understood the content, we had the exact same conversations 
on the other side of the Atlantic that we had here. The same conversations about about self and about God and about these topics, the same observations and questions, you know, it, it really, I think, spoke to the the universality of not just the human condition, but even Lewis's ability to lay his finger on things that we already know to be true, whether we want to look them straight in the face or not. And so that was a really neat thing we got to do that very much broadened out the project for us. I, I think you're right. I think it, it speaks to something of Lewis's genius and his his own statement that that which isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. But yeah, I didn't know, didn't know that about France. Uh, if we have any French listeners, please write to me. We, we need to get Lewis into France. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I actually did some street evangelism near um, the Moulin Rouge. And yeah, it was... It was eye-opening. <laughs> mm-hmm. For a country that was so close to my own, it was very, very different. Yeah, I think that's always been the way. The, the French and the British have always looked across the channel uh, in confusion. <laughs> yes, this is, this is the normal point in the episode where I start making derogatory remarks about France, because this is what we're trained to do as British children. But uh, uh, since I actually want to engage with France now and get them to read Lewis, I'm going to just lay that off and say that, say that we're neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd just like to end this episode with encouraging all the listeners to go and watch the Great Divorce Project videos on YouTube. As always, there'll be links in the show notes. And Justin, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. It's been neat to see other people find these things valuable. You know, it's kind of like what, what C.S. Lewis says about friendship. You know, friendship happens when somebody else says, oh, really? I thought I was the only, the only one. one. <laughs> yes. And if listeners have any feedback, they can contact us through restlesspilgrim.net, pintswithjack.com, and our Twitter and Instagram handle is at pintswithjack. And we'll be back with The Great Divorce next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>